I'm encouraged. A lot of the trends that I'm seeing, you know, from private equity, from Wall Street, from companies, you know, in-house, from states, from local governments, and what I'm hearing, you know, even from Republicans and Democrats in Washington, I think 2020 was a strange year for a million different reasons, but I, I'm optimistic about clean energy and, and climate in the, in the years to come. The numbers are still coming in and the trends are still formalizing, but we already have a pretty good picture of how the climate and energy landscape has evolved in 2020, which has been a remarkable year for several reasons. There's the coronavirus pandemic, a historic and divisive US election, renewed calls and protests for racial justice, and much more. In this episode, we discuss how 2020 is shaping up for the energy transition. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, your host, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media, and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And with me this week are my Democrat and Republican co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. Brandon is a former chief of staff at the Department of Energy, a partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners, and a clean tech investor. Brandon, how are you doing today? I could be better, honestly, Julia. Um, I got food poisoning <laughs> a couple of days ago, uh, and so I'm still bouncing back from that. Uh, so if I'm not uh, my usual self today, uh, that's why. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, we'll try to go easy on you. Shane, of course, is our Republican on this show. He is a partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and a former energy advisor to Representative Paul Ryan. Shane, how are you on this fine day? I am doing fantastic. I mean, even better than I thought because I do not have food poisoning. So that's pretty rad. And then on top of that, I just found out formally that my kids will be starting school in January in person five days a week, which is something we haven't done since last March. So I am having a very, very, very wonderful day. Yeah, I don't know how you did it, both you and your wife working full-time jobs while trying to teach three kids. Uh, I know it's been tough for the parents out there, so hoping 2021 is better for everyone on that front. So it's just the three of us this week, and we're going to dive into a discussion on what 2020 meant for the energy transition. We're speaking now about a third of the way into December, so this is not going to be a comprehensive review. We are still waiting for all the assessments and reports to come out looking back at the year, but we do still have a fairly good idea of how things are trending. And what I think is clear is that the energy transition accelerated this year, despite all the economic turmoil and the political controversy, the health scare, and everything that made 2020 such a disruptive year. But of course, it's always a bit of a mixed picture. Governments are under a huge financial strain as they try to cope with the coronavirus pandemic that sparked discussions around green stimulus plans, both here in the U.S. and abroad. Of course, local governments are feeling the crunch as well. Here in the U.S., there's a new administration coming in, the Biden administration, and they, of course, have all kinds of big plans. But we can't forget that we're still living in a very politically divided country, and that could have some real implications for what ultimately happens in climate and energy. Separate from the politics, we are seeing industries move forward. We're seeing financial players get more aggressive on clean energy solutions and divesting from fossil fuels. And so we'll get into some of these trends. But first, let's start with the political angle on this. Brandon, what's your main takeaway for climate and energy policy and politics in 2020? So I've been thinking a lot about this. And there's a journalist, Ron Brownstein, who works with CNN and The Atlantic, that I think framed this very accurately. I think what we're seeing in these hyper 
polarized and hyper-partisan times where we have, you know, red states are getting redder, blue states are getting bluer, and you have this sort of, you know, cultural uh, divide between the culture of, you know, restoration, uh, you know, restoring the old ways and transformation, this sort of post-industrial economies is really being overlaid with the difference between brown uh, fossil fuel-based economy and green economy. So, if you look at the 21 states that have the most carbon intensive economies, uh, Republicans now hold 37 of those Senate seats, uh, 37 of the 42 Senate seats. And in the 21 states that have the least carbon intensive economies, Democrats hold 36 of those 42 Senate seats. So we're really seeing, uh, you know, the brown sort of fossil fuel-based economy where you have either consumers relying on fossil fuels or an economy that is heavily dependent on fossil fuel producers are really aligning, overlining, you know, with the red states and the green uh, economies, you know, really aligning with the blue states. Uh, and that's, that is causing a, a pretty big divide in this country right now. That's interesting because I feel like we are hearing those stories around, you know, fossil fuels being a political wedge issue. Um, and so we're seeing that on some level. And yet on the clean side, it seems like that's transcending red and blue barriers. Like we hear about Texas, you know, still a red state, despite your uh, wishes there, Brandon, and you guys is a bet this mm -hmm. year. It did not go blue in this past election, but it is nonetheless seeing renewables grow at a, a huge pace, really like right on California's tail at this point. Um, and a stat there to sort of ground this is that in 2019, ERCOT, the uh, grid operator there, uh, said there were 43.5 gigawatts of solar project applications. And this year, 2020, around five gigawatts are expected to be complete and actually be constructed by the end of the year. Of course, all this happening amid a pandemic and solar expected to grow in Texas uh, almost 15 gigawatts over the next five years. So here you have a red state, not blue yet, but is nonetheless going green, which we talked to Pat Wood about, a former utility regulator in the state previously in a previous episode. So to challenge you on that, is it really that defined or do we need to get a more nuanced picture here really? Well, I'll give you a few more stats that reinforce it. So of the 21 states that emit the most carbon per dollar of economic output, Trump won 20 of those 21 states. Of the 21 states with the least emissions, Biden won 19 of them. So, but I do think you're right. The thing that could soften that is in those states um, like Texas uh, that are becoming, you know, more oriented towards renewables, you're seeing it become bluer. And that might be a reason why it's becoming, uh, you know, bluer. And another, uh, you know, circumstance that might be softening that as well as some of those states uh, that Trump won are suffering from extreme weather events uh, more than others. So if you think about uh, hurricanes uh, in, in North Carolina uh, you know, in Florida and Texas, states that, you know, Trump won, uh, you know, those states that th those things might be influencing that uh, in the other way. Uh, but right now, I, I, you know, we're seeing a, a pretty direct correlation between 
uh, red and blue states and brown and green states. Shane, what do you make of that? You know, I, I was I was listening because I, I really hadn't seen these numbers and, and gone over it. So I, I was listening pr- pretty closely and I, I found myself wondering, are we talking about correlation, causation or both? And I, I don't think that's knowable, but it, but it is interesting because I wonder, you know, are um, Republicans, you know, less likely to support significant changes um, in energy policy because the constituencies they represent are highly reliant on those types of energy? Or is it more of a, a political thing where those states are more conservative and as a result, they're more you know reliant on traditional energy resources? So I, I think it's interesting. I don't quite know what to make of it yet, but it does actually help me better understand when you look at you know vote counts on, on certain types of legislation or even letters signed by certain you know congressional delegations or, or members of the Senate, stuff like that, why, you know, people have maybe the take they do on certain things because a representative's job or a senator's job or, you know, a state rep or a governor's job is really to serve their constituents, the people who live in their district, in their state, you know, so on and so forth. And so, you know, you can't fault them for doing the things that they need to do to continue, you know, to allow their economy to function. At the same time, I think that we all believe there are really cool and sort of innovative, forward-looking solutions that can do both of those things, uh, keep the economy growing and also re- reduce emissions significantly. So uh, it gave me a lot to chew on, but I don't quite have a, a takeaway that I could state you know, definitively. Yeah. The reason it caught my eye is it is concerning to me that we seem to be gravitating towards these two really different worlds that we live in. Uh, you know, one world, you know, where the cultures are uh, you know, very diverse, um, and based on, uh, you know, sort of forward thinking, uh, and one that is, you know, more based on the past, one that is heavily democratic, one that is heavily Republican, one that is heavily fossil fuel based, one that is, you know, very clean energy based. And in those, you know, within those worlds, you know, very different information bubbles as well, as we've talked about on this show, where you're living in two different information worlds. And we're seeing that play out with Republicans questioning the legitimacy of Biden's election. Um, And so it's just causing me some concern where you're seeing um, this divide becoming two really deeply entrenched camps with two very different ways of life. I agree that that is a main takeaway from 2020, uh, broadly, politically. But I think I'm going to stick with the opposite position on clean energy, that it's not necessarily wrapped up in this broader divide and perhaps is an area of collaboration uniquely so. I ground that in the financial news that we're seeing and the business announcements, things like the fact that Uh, 44 investor-owned utilities have pledged to hit goals for reducing emissions. Uh, That's according to the Edison Electric Institute, which is not exactly a bastion of, you know, left progressive policy. You know, it is the industry trade group for utilities, which as an industry are sort of inherently conservative because they have so much responsibility. And those trends continued this year. And the utilities uh, include customers, uh, serve customers in 41 states, and at least 17 of them have Republican governors. Now, the question of follow through is relevant. I get it. Uh, There are goals being set by utilities, but still investments in fossil fuels being made. It's not as though they've uh, flipped a switch on that front. 
But I do think that publicly stated goals are something you can hold them accountable to and people will do that. So in that regard, these commitments are significant and notably continued this year. And then on the investment side, we're seeing record investments into clean and green solutions, which we can get into more later, and divestment from fossil fuels. So I think that the climate word, and this has been said by others before, is very divisive and it falls along those blue-red lines, but that the clean energy piece, at least from what I see right now, is not quite so um, polarizing. And and, and Julia, I just want to jump on that because I think that's right. I think the clean energy piece isn't. And I know, you know, when you can talk about reduced emissions as living in a world of plenty. In other words, you can have more of everything you like uh, and it's going to be cleaner and safer and all that sort of stuff. I think people can get behind that, which is why clean energy um, is not as divisive. But I think climate, when people say that word, and I'm not blaming the word, of course, but just people start to think of limiting my choice, limiting my options, limiting my, you know, the size of my house, size of my car, all those sorts of things. Now, I think we all know that with innovation, it doesn't have to be that way. But I think we're seeing a lot of this in a lot of the issues that Brandon mentioned. I think people are dividing um, and there's sort of a, a, the, the conservatives where I, you know, firmly lie are really sort of we want freedom and choice and, and individual freedom, individual liberty, all those sorts of things. And I do think that clean energy, you know, satisfies both camps because it's it's a choice and it's good and it's positive and it's innovative and it's forward-looking. It's also super climate-friendly. But I do agree that some of the other sort of more complicated issues tend to you know divide. Jane, can it also be, though, an aversion to change? Uh, so absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I can I can even speak for myself that sometimes I have an aversion to change reflexively. So so I think I think that is definitely true for some, if not for most. Yeah. Well, I'm going to give a shout out here, which I think is tangentially related uh, for our episode with David Roberts, who actually just left Vox to start his own newsletter called Volts. And it was interesting and relevant to this because we really dug into are Republicans the issue with combating climate change? He says a resounding yes. And I think that even almost a year later, that conversation is still relevant. So I hope people will go back and listen to it. Shane, let's go to you. Do you, what, do you have a political trend before we move into some other stats on the industry side? Yeah, I, I think one of the things I've noticed at, at every level, both you know, local, state, federal, and international, there's been a lot more focus on non-power sector emissions. So that doesn't mean, of course, discussions about power sector emissions have gone away, but people seem to be more, much more thoughtful about you know not just transportation emissions when we talk about companies like Tesla, but also you know freight and, and having semi trucks um, use you know run on electric batteries rather than internal combustion engines. People think about industrial emissions and can you electrify industrial processes or does that require you know, hydrogen because the energy density required? People talk about trade. It just seems like discussions about economy-wide emissions are much broader and much more common. And frankly, more people are participating in them, whether you, you know, like natural solutions like House Republicans are, are promoting. There's just been a lot of discussion about climate change from every different angle. And I don't think that that was the case, at least, you know, in my view, a year or so ago. Shane, how could that play out in Washington, D.C. with Republicans next year? What Do you think that, that could it, there could be more stimulus funding for those other areas that need to be decarbonized? Absolutely. I think, you know, so there's, there's two ways it's going to work. And, and of course, any Democrat is going to hate to hear this, but there's either going to be the go the route of what's agreeable. And a lot of time that's going to, you know, be funding, right? Like you said, Brandon, it's going to be stimulus for uh, electric um, infrastructure. It's going to be you know, maybe even maybe even tariffs or, or border adjustment taxes. I know that's a thorny issue on both sides of the aisle, but when you start to look at how do you combat 
um, Chinese goods being dumped here when they have, you know, far worse emissions profile or, you know, energy products, stuff like that. So I do think that there are going to be opportunities to take wins and that could be funding innovative forward-looking technologies or finding other ways to take carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, and then there's the other way, which is just trying to force, you know, what Democrats have been working on for a while. And, and the, the merits of the policy aside, there's just Washington is way too narrowly divided to have any sort of overwhelming, you know, partisan policy move in any sector, including energy and climate. Brandon, I know you had sort of a last uh, political thought about the uh, overarching nature of how we're addressing climate solutions today. Do you want to touch on that? Yeah, Shane mentioned that he's seeing climate have greater uh, attention in areas beyond just the power sector in things like industrial emissions and, and whatnot. Uh, I'm also seeing climate uh, have greater applicability in an intersectional approach uh, with other issues like social justice uh, and public health. Uh, and so I think we, we saw that really accelerate in 2020 with environmental justice, uh, and, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter uh, collaborating on, uh, on these issues uh, with the public health issues of COVID due to the pandemic and the effects of air quality has brought it, uh, raised the profile of climate. And so I think that that is here to stay. These, these things that happened in 2020, where you saw climate uh, having more resonance with other issues like social justice and public health. I think that will continue going forward and it won't just be a 2020 thing. And on the social justice front, you know, where we see uh, a priority on diversity uh, with Democrats, you're seeing this play out with uh, the Biden personnel picks. You can see that this is a, a top priority for him. Uh, he's making diversity a key aspect of his uh, nominations. And there's a lot of interest from the stakeholders who are holding him accountable for that. Well, because you mentioned personnel, I feel like a name we've seen in the news lately is Brian Deese, who is being uh, tapped to join the Biden administration. He's a former a head of sustainable investing at BlackRock. And that was controversial because, you know, having worked for that big asset manager, been sort of a Wall Street guy, uh, climate activists think that he's not the best representative uh, to include climate into the Biden administration's economic planning. So I don't know, any thoughts on that, Brandon, on what a figure like Brian Deese says about, you know, how a Biden administration will address these issues in a comprehensive way? It's a huge win for the climate movement. I worked with Brian in the Obama administration. Um, this is the first time that we'll have the, the chair of the National Economic Council, which is one of the most powerful positions in the United States government. You think about it, Larry Summers, who people know, had that position. That position, the person that sits in that chair is now Brian Deese, who is uh, a climate uh, policy expert. Uh, it is a true you know, passion of his, and I saw that firsthand. And I also saw that Brian is willing to speak up uh, speak truth to power, uh, even when it's uncomfortable. Uh, and so I'm really excited that he is going to be in that very influential role. And I know that he has an open door to sort of all the climate groups uh, and that he thinks about things like environmental justice. Uh, so I think it's going to be great to have a climate champion with his expertise and experience uh, and his character 
uh, in that office. And, and Julia, I want to chip in here. So I don't, I don't know Brian. Um, I've interacted with him, you know, a, a couple times back when they were. He was at OMB actually working for um, Sylvia Matthews Burwell, who was OMB director. I worked for Ryan at the time, and, and these were when wildfires, you know, became noticeable national news on an annual basis. And so we had jurisdiction over budget caps and, you know, when you could use um, relief money and OMB was requesting, you know, billions of dollars of additional money. Conversation for another time, but but that was my interaction with, with Brian. Uh, you seemed to, 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 you know, know what he was doing, so I don't have a ton to say substantively. What I will say, though, is that I think the left, you know, really needs to get it under control with criticizing people like Brian or others just because they've worked in the private sector. Everything Brandon's saying sounds like he would be someone who the left should want in, in that position at NEC. And I'm just getting tired of reading stories about anyone who's had any private sector experience whatsoever being sort of pilloried as unfit to serve in government. I don't think, um, I don't think that that's going to help our country if we're, if we're barring people from public service because they have real world experience. I think it maybe just exposes a, a misunderstanding on what it takes to meet some climate goals. Like to meet net zero by 2050, we have to mobilize something on the order of $1 trillion every year through 2050. Um, that means the private sector needs to be involved. Governments can't do that alone. So I think there's almost just a bit of a misunderstanding about the need for a government leadership and bold action, yes, but also then directing the private sector to take a role too and to play a, a key role too. And that gets into green investments and divestments from fossil fuels. Um, but would you guys agree that there's maybe just a misunderstanding of what it takes to meet the goals that a government sets and then, you know, how the private sector jumps in there? Brandon, you're an investor. Does, does that seem like I'm hitting on a, an accurate tension? Yeah. And also what control you have. I mean, for people that were disappointed in some of the climate policies that we had in the Obama administration and were critical of that, you know, Brian didn't get to make all those decisions. <laughs> he was a voice in the room sometimes, but not sometimes the ultimate decider. In some cases it was the Republicans, you know, that uh, you don't have control over. Uh, so sometimes it could be your own team or the Republicans, or, you know, if you're at BlackRock, um, he was not in charge. <laughs> so, you uh, you know, sometimes you don't get to control the outcome. Uh, and so I think that there's a nuance there that sometimes doesn't get, you know, full appreciation. There were times behind closed doors in the Obama administration when I fought for something to be bolder and more progressive. And I lost, you know, because I wasn't always the boss. Fair enough. Well, yes, personnel, an interesting uh, topic here domestically, of course, as we see the Biden administration shaping up. I think a major trend there, too, is this all of government approach to climate with people who understand the climate issue being placed throughout the administration in these economic roles, in housing roles, health roles, etc. So I think that is going to be a new uh, shift in the way that uh, climate policy gets made. But that's looking ahead to 2021. So let's get back to 2020. In a testament to just how robust the clean energy market has been this year, the International Energy Agency finally accepted and acknowledged the importance of solar energy and crowned it, quote, the king of electricity in its October World Energy Outlook. The IEA stated renewable sources of electricity have been resilient during the COVID-19 crisis and are set for strong growth, rising by two-thirds from 2020 to 2030. 
the IEA forecasts that renewables will meet 80% of global electricity demand growth during the next decade to overtake coal as the primary source of electricity generation by 2025. The IEA is known for being a little behind of the times and capturing technology developments and trends, uh, but I think that having this international organization really acknowledge, acknowledge solar as such a leading resource is significant. And building on that, I want to highlight a stat that comes from the Institute of Energy, Economics, and Financial Analysis. And this is actually a conversation I had on the Political Climate Podcast in our Ditch series with Tim Buckley. So if you're interested in this stat and want to know more about these trends, I recommend going to check out that episode on why 2020 is turning out to be a pivotal year for fossil fuel exits. And the stat here from IEFA is that as of October, there have been 56 global banks, insurers, pension funds, and asset managers that have announced or expanded their policies to exit coal. And overall, there are now 143 globally significant financial institutions that have made such divestment policies. So that's fascinating. Coal, it seems, really has a, you know, a nail in the coffin here in terms of financing. Of course, it's not gone away. Uh, there are still plenty of coal plants in existence. But this trend in terms of the, the funding and cutting off that flow is critical for the world to ultimately transition away from this resource. And the other thing that IEFA found is that now these policies are extending from coal into oil and gas. And the gas piece here is interesting too, because of course people may have heard of natural gas as a bridge fuel, a bridge between fossil fuels, between coal and clean. But now with greater satellite uh, imaging and, and science, we are finding that the impacts of methane are perhaps greater than anticipated. And so the spotlight's being shone on gas as well, natural gas or fossil gas, as not as clean as people maybe thought it would be. And thus the financial markets are including those resources in their divestment strategies. So put that to you guys. Shane, any thoughts on this divestment trend? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, capital should go where it wants to go. I, I, I think, you know, people who are overly enthusiastic about divesting from any sort of emitting asset now, probably not, you know, really thinking through the economics of, of the global sort of energy systems. But at the same time, you know, people who are saying these firms should not be permitted to divest or they must serve, you know, a fiduciary duty by not divesting. I think that's, you know, absurd, too. I think uh, private capital does a really good job at picking up on trends because its job is to make money. Um, but private capital also does a good job in setting trends. And so I don't think anyone from really any side of the political spectrum should be upset when they see capital looking at the global landscape and making decisions. And if those decisions lead to you know, fewer emissions and a, and, a, and a cleaner sort of energy landscape, that's great. And on that front, we actually just saw the New York State Pension fund announced today, uh, a Wednesday, that they are divesting their pension funds from fossil fuels and setting a net zero and decarbonization goal as well for 2040. So it is the largest pension fund to date to make such a commitment. And again, a plug for our ditch series where I just spoke to Dan Zarelli with the with New York City about the city level pension fund commitment. So again, seeing more of a trend happening in that space. Brandon, what about the investment side? What are you seeing in terms of the exciting new green, low carbon things that uh, the financial folks of the world are putting their money into? Seeing incredible opportunity uh, with technology development uh, and these companies, uh, you know, really growing up. You know, with one of the investment firms I work with, um, you know, Energy Technology Partners. You know, we announced that we inv invested in Form Energy, 
um, recently, which is a long duration storage. Uh, it's very exciting technology has yet to be deployed, but they have uh, an agreement with the utility uh, to do a pilot um, in the next two years. And so if it, if it works, it's going to be an incredible breakthrough. Uh, and so we're really excited about the team, uh, but we're just seeing incredible entrepreneurs and companies out there that I think can help address the, the climate crisis uh, and do so in a way that's going to create a lot of jobs uh, and a lot of great economic growth, you know, for the country. Yeah, it has been it has been interesting to see more and more money going into the clean energy sector, new funds being announced, uh, more securitizations, just more all around, even amid all the economic turmoil of this year. Do you have any insight on why that is, Brandon, why the markets feel comfortable moving into this space, even though, you know, there's some uncertainty economically writ large? Well, because I think that they're they, they see the same things. I mean, in energy, you know, particularly where you have uh, these long-term assets, uh, if you're trying to think about, uh, you know, a power plant or whatnot that uh, you need to have for the next 30 years, do you want to make that bet uh, right now on, on, you know, fossil fuels? Uh, or if you're looking at what's happening with solar and wind, uh, and the, the price of you know lithium-ion batteries uh, and other types of batteries, the cost decrease that we're seeing, uh, and what we're seeing on the transportation sector, very exciting with GM and Volkswagen and Tesla. Uh, you know the valuation of Tesla right now is incredible. Uh, what's happening over there? So uh, I think people are seeing that that's happening faster uh, than they would have expected, and there's incredible opportunity there, and we're seeing. Uh, in the public markets, you know, with these special purpose acquisition companies, uh, which is a way to sort of a different way to take a company public. Uh, We're seeing capital flow into these companies uh, through those mechanisms. So it gives investors confidence that that there can be what's called an exit, you know, where they can get uh, a return on their investment. Um, And so there's been a cadence uh, of that happening uh, in sort of clean economy world in the last uh, year that is giving even more confidence uh, for those investments. Yeah. Anyone who's followed this space will know that, uh, you know, a decade or so ago, a lot of investors really got rocked by uh, putting money into the clean tech sector. And I know I kind of started covering this space as the upswing was starting again, but there was a lot of hesitancy. So it's kind of amazing to see where we are now and just new funds being announced all the time. Uh, Amazon has the Amazon Climate Pledge Fund, which was announced in June of 2020. Uh, There's also, you know, Generate Capital, our friend Jigger Shah, he has a $1 billion fund, and they're working on a, on a range of different climate solutions and investing there. Microsoft has a climate innovation fund, a $1 billion fund. $1 billion seems to be like the, the target number here for these funds. Um, and those are just a few that we've seen headlines around this year that are, are, are operating. And I think also expanding from just clean energy into what we're hearing called climate tech and really looking at other types of things to invest in, kind of going to Shane's point around natural solutions, uh, more than just solar and wind. So another trend in 2020 uh, that's really moving the ball forward on on the uh, energy transition. I would just add too that uh, on the investing front, it doesn't hurt that with a new administration, they're going to see 
you know, tailwinds on the policy side uh, for these investments rather than the headwinds that they had to run up against with the Trump administration. Uh, you know, who knows what will come out of the Congress and such, but just things like, you know, look what's happened with two of the automakers on uh, the fuel efficiency standards, right? They've done a complete, uh, you know, turn of 180, and now uh, they're siding, uh, you know, with what Biden wants to do on fuel efficiency regulations. So that's just an example of uh, the types of changes that we're going to see with the Biden administration. It just gives investors more, you know, confidence that uh, the government isn't going to interfere uh, in a negative way on these investments. Right. And to your point about you know, the larger trends that we're seeing the investors respond to this year. Also, another major milestone is that China, Japan and South Korea all made carbon neutral pledges. That's a big deal. That's a, that's a those are three large economies that have all now planted their flag and saying that they are striving toward a carbon neutral future. Shane, do you have any thoughts on that and what it means to have these international players uh, make these outward commitments? And do you think going to the U.S., there's any chance the U.S. could get in line with that, too? I mean, look, I could see a Biden administration making a pledge. I'm sure that they they plan to make a pledge, and I know they plan to rejoin the Paris Agreement, and that's all good and fine. I think what I've always said and, and what I've always meant is that I don't really care about pledges. I want to see action. So when we see, for example, you know, some of the states, I think Illinois is one, California is another, where you make a pledge to be, you know, X percent, reduced emissions or X percent, you know, carbon neutral by a certain year. That's great if that's your goal. But but I don't believe that China is going to take the steps necessary to be carbon neutral. I don't I don't know enough about Japan's economy to say that. So I don't mean to be a negative Nancy here, but I get a little worked up when there's all these flattering articles about a pledge someone made to complete some action at some time deep into the future. I'd rather see a plan. You know, tell me what you're going to do today and tomorrow and next month and next year, and I can celebrate that. But these pledges don't mean a whole lot to me. Well, I take your point about a plan. My understanding is that China does have these five-year plans that do include some level of detail on how they're going to meet their goals. Because they are both um, incentivized to lead the clean energy transition, for instance, China has never got a foot in on the fossil fuel vehicle market. They want to lead in EVs and they think they can leave, lead in EVs because there's a gap there. And other than Tesla, you know, there aren't that many Western automakers that are truly dominating, whereas China has so many auto companies in that space and they think that they can run the entire auto industry by dominating the EV industry. So I think that their incentives are aligned to go green. And so that's what makes me think that uh, we shouldn't question too much their commitment to this. Although I take your point that any goal, you know, has to be followed through with action and whether they get 50% of the way there or 100% of the way there at the end of the day still remains to be seen. A hundred percent. And I think China will continue to do everything they can to corner any market that could be a market that's going to be a growth market in the future. I don't, I don't deny that at all. I just got annoyed when like, for example, when Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement and you read any newspaper and it's like the U.S. is the only country in the world that's not a party to this, except, you know, some country that obviously we don't want to be compared to. I don't remember who it was. And, and I get that. But, but then you look at what actually happened, right? And we've made more gains in emissions reductions in our power sector and economy wide than all these other countries who are still part of the agreement. So all I'm saying is I don't like to be lectured by you know, other countries who say they're going to do something but don't actually do it. I just want people to, to do what they're going to do and then I can celebrate that. Well, on that point, uh, you, know, you mentioned that the U.S. has seen its emissions fall. 
One part of that is that coal generation in the U.S. fell by 30% in the first six months of 2020. I don't have the stat yet for the full year, but that's stunning to see that coal power generation has fallen by that much. At the same time, renewables grew 5% and uh, gas also grew 9%. So we are actually seeing gas step in here too and replace coal. Uh, These these stats are according to the Energy Information Administration, uh, but just another uh, marker there on how the energy mix in the U.S. has transformed this year, despite uh, the turbulence in the markets writ large. And another stat on that front is looking globally at the fact that global emissions, according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, may have actually peaked in 2019 because this year we actually saw emissions go down so much due to the pandemic. They think that they dropped around 8.6% in 2020. This is global emissions, according to Bloomberg. And as a result, that means that 2019 could actually have been the highest year for global emissions. Bloomberg thinks that emissions will rise in 2021 and beyond, but that it may not actually go beyond the 2019 levels. So if that's true, that's kind of a, a watershed moment in which we're seeing global emissions hit a plateau. The question there is when will they actually start to meaningfully decline, which science says you know is necessary to meet our climate goals. Now let's turn to EVs. Globally, sales accelerated in 2020. In October, the last month I was able to find numbers for, there were over 340,000 plug-ins sold, which is up 127% from a year ago. Those global October sales are the second best monthly result ever for EVs, coming right after September 2020, which saw the most EVs sold in one month globally to date. So from where we sit now, the plug-in car market is now around 5% of the entire vehicle market. Now, in the U.S., the market is moving slower than in some other parts of the world, and especially in Europe. However, it looks like 2020 will actually see EV sales return to positive growth after a decline in 2019. So some positive trends there, and of course, we'll have to see how 2021 plays out. But the numbers so far would indicate that EVs are indeed on an upswing, despite some consumers having some tighter pocketbooks. All right, we'll just run through the final couple of stats that I've seen this year that I think really, again, demonstrate how the energy transition has moved forward. States, we saw states continue to lead on climate and energy policy One example of that, and there are others, and there are many, is that Nevada, the voters there passed question three, the constitutional amendment that will require utilities to get at least 50% of their renewable energy, 50% of their energy from renewables by 2030. Uh, In Arizona, we saw that commissioners there are advancing a 100% clean energy target, and this includes some Republican commissioners who were recently elected. And there are lots of other state actions to point to, but uh, to, to Shane's point about the U.S. moving forward, despite not having a big international commitment, uh, these are some of those examples. I think the state stuff is really inspiring. I think so when we start to look at, you know, what's possible at the federal level and you start to think it's going to be a lot of stasis, uh, I do think there's going to be money available, whether that's through tax incentives, whether that's through grants, whether that's through, you know, creating uh, loan guarantees or some of the, you know, some similar programs to what the Obama administration put in place with the Recovery Act. So I think there will be money and R&D provided by the federal government. And then states who are actually, you know, closer to their voters, just because they they literally, you know, govern the state where you live rather than than in Washington, they seem to be, you know, more responsive to when the public says we want, you know, more clean energy, we want greater EV deployment, we want reduced emissions. You can see states, red and blue states alike, are starting to take action. So there could be a really cool trend where states who 
you know, are physically closer to their voters are doing these things that they're hearing that their voters want. And the federal government is providing some know-how, uh, some R&D and some finances to, to help get that stuff done. And that could be a really cool sort of federal state partnership, if you will, in, in furthering some of some of these policy goals without having to pass a sweeping bill at the federal level. Yeah, although we'll see if Brandon's point proves true and there is some limit to what gets done in red states as we see these broader societal and political divisions, you know, continue to, to plague the country in some ways. But on your note about being local, I think another trend here is the electrification of everything, which cities are really leading on. We're seeing we're seeing cities pass ordinances and rules that would phase out natural gas for heating and cooking and electricity in buildings. Uh, as of April 2020, Santa Cruz was the 30th city or county in California to enact such a measure. Again, I don't have the updated numbers for the remainder of the year yet, but it looks like this is going to have been a real tipping moment for cities taking action on removing gas from buildings. And we see cities in Washington State, Maryland, Michigan, and elsewhere also looking at rules like this. So again, moving away from the federal level and even beyond the state level, there's, there's plenty of uh, action happening. Well, I think those are some things we can hang our hats on for this year. You know, again, the numbers are not all in. We will see the reports come out in January, really logging what this year meant. But I think you guys have pointed to some uh, interesting trends and we have some interesting stats that show really how amid everything else going on, the clean energy transition did progress. Any final thoughts from you guys as we close out? My walkaway thought would be that I'm actually encouraged. I, I, I think uh, I know some of the things I've said today might, might you know, be the opposite just because I'm not super impressed with China's commitment or whatever. But I'm encouraged. A lot of the trends that I'm seeing, you know, from private equity, from Wall Street, from companies, you know, in-house, from states, from local governments. And what I'm hearing, you know, even from Republicans and Democrats in Washington, I think 2020 was a strange year for a million different reasons. But I, I'm optimistic about clean energy and, and climate in the, in the years to come. Policymaking, I mean, of course, and also, you know, capital being deployed. Fair enough. Well, we'll be looking to Brandon to make that happen in his, in his investment role. No pressure. <laughs> well, it's, you know, I think we're all glad that this year is finally going to be over soon, <laughs> right? And hopefully 2021 with a vaccine, a new administration, um, you know, will be, will be better times for everybody. Fair enough. Well, We'll, uh, we'll leave it there. We'll make that our say something nice that we hope 2021 is better than 2020 for everyone. Um, all right, guys, have a good rest of your day. Thanks to everybody for listening. Remember to subscribe to Political Climate if you haven't yet. Julie, are we on Parlor yet? <laughs> I don't know. Shane, are you? I think it's mostly Republicans on there. Yeah, I don't know. I've, I've never, I can honestly tell you, I've, I've never been on, on Parler. I hear it's similar to, to Twitter, I guess. But as you guys know, though I'm trying to get better, I don't spend a whole lot of time on there. I think it's funny that Parler is actually the word parler in French, which means to talk or to speak. And thinking back to calling French fries freedom fries, I do think it's sort of funny that uh, Parler has become the home of, you know, make America great again, given that it's a French word after all. <laughs> and that's it for now. I'm Julia Piper, signing off.